Amen and amen. All right, we're on part two of this series, and I've got quite a bit I want to cover, so uh, you're going to have to listen, listen fast. Listen fast. Dial in the best you can. I'm just a little ring up. All right, let's take a look at this. Last week, we laid a foundation. This week, we're going to go a little deeper. Going to say some things a little more intensely. And uh, we're trying to get to the root of the matter. You know, you can deal with symptoms, but dealing with symptoms doesn't take care of it, does it? You got to get to the root of the issues, don't we? Got to get to the bottom of things. So we're going to get to the bottom of things today um, and, and go after the roots, causes that, that bring division and try to see if we can align our hearts with the, the Holy Spirit in an even greater way so that we can come into greater unity and love. All right, let's look at this. Roman numeral one, God's heart toward discrimination. You know, I was surprised as I've continued to lean into the Bible on the issues of prejudice and bias and discrimination, how often the topics are addressed. Now, uh, we don't see the word racism per se in the Bible, but we see the topic continually addressed. We see prejudice continually addressed. The Lord uses terms like disunity, partiality. Um, he, he uses terms, terms like unity to speak into it, but it's speaking of all the same things. So let's look at this verse here, James chapter two. The church, if you have a very direct personality, you love the book of James because he just says it directly, doesn't he? He just cuts it straight. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. Well, here we go. Verse one, to dispense with the sugarcoating. Here we go. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Partiality. That would be another term, another word for discrimination or prejudice. In fact, when you look up the Greek word behind that, some commentators actually say prejudice. I'm actually just ringing still a little bit, Jim. Thank you. So he says, let's not hold our faith with any prejudice, with any partiality. And what James is going to do is he's going to deal with the issue of economic discrimination. And he says this, for there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my footstool, have you not shown partiality or have you not been discriminatory among yourself? And then look what he says, and you've become judges with evil thoughts. So clearly the Lord calls out partiality and discrimination as an evil thing. And I, I want to just continue to take this from a broad conversation to a very narrow conversation. I want to get the heart of the Lord on it. I want to see how the Lord addresses this in the New Testament. And then I want to call us into unity at a greater level than we've experienced possibly. Look what Paul said in talking to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter. In chapter 5, he gives Timothy a list of pastoral directions, things that he's supposed to lead the church into. And then he says this. <laughs> this is intense. If you think about Paul as Timothy's spiritual father and this, this apostle in the New Testament, he says, I charge you 
before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things, all the different, all the different you know, commands and directions he just given. He goes, do all these things without prejudice and do nothing with partiality. So we see the Lord directly addressing the issue of discrimination, partiality, and prejudice in the New Testament. I'm gonna show you some other examples. But here's something that maybe we don't quite catch, and I just wanna lay this out for you in just, just sort of a broad way. You can do a lot more study on this on your own. But when you're talking about the context of the New Testament, when you're talking about the first century, and you're talking about what Jesus the, the state of affairs that Jesus came into, especially in Israel, is uh, at that time, the world in the Middle East really segregated along racial and cultural and national lines. We can miss that point, but it is, I mean, it is one of the most mixed up bags of division and discrimination that Jesus shows up in. I mean, think about it. Rome has Israel under tribute. They're an occupying force holding the Jews essentially under military occupation and requiring Israel to pay tribute to Rome. Rome had an elitism about them. They were looking at the Jews as lesser people. They were uh, you know, a dominant force in the earth, a, a world power. At the same time, so you have that distinction. At the same time, we're only, when Jesus is on the scene, we're only about 200 years from when the Greeks had, had leadership and ownership of Jerusalem and Antiochus Epiphanes had sacrificed a, a pig on the altar of the holy place and desecrated the temple. So not only do we have major problems between the Romans and the Jews, we have major problems between the Greeks and the Jews. And to just throw another little piece into the equation, we've got Jewish and Samaritan massive disunity. We don't really comprehend it, but the Samaritans were sort of a half-breed Jewish people who had come about when Israel had gone into captivity, and you had these occupying you know, foreign nations come in and sort of uh, intermingle with the Jews that had been left in the land, and they began to uh, essentially worship falsely, and they were, you know, eating uh, pig and, and, and breaking the law and, and living as sort of this half kind of Jewish, half Gentile people. Well, there was 500 years of established prejudice and disunity and, and, and divide between the Samaritans and the Jews. So we've got Roman Jewish, Greek Jewish, and Samaritan Jewish essentially racism going on. So it's every single where you go in the New Testament. So when you're reading the epistles and you're reading Paul writing to Ephesians, the Ephesian church or the Colossians or the Philippians, you've got a Jewish man speaking to Gentiles who many of them have Roman background or Greek background and he's calling them into unity under the banner of love. My point of, of saying all this is one of the main messages of the New Testament is unity. You kind of already knew that because you've seen the verses, but it's not just don't get in a fight with the person next to you. When we read unity verses, we think, well, I'm not supposed to be in strife. I gotta like that person. 
we're not thinking that it's an ethnic and racial disunity that they're addressing, but it certainly is on at least three key fronts. This is the context of, are you hearing? We're reading it, we've got to read it through a completely different lens. It's not mostly about you getting in a fight with that person and having a little disunity in the church. Now that's a problem, don't do that. But it's what the message of the New Testament is, is a comprehensive call to love and unity under the banner of Christ that transcends culture and ethnicity. It's a, con, it's a continual focus of the New Testament. All right, let me illustrate. Roman numeral two. Here's prejudice addressed in the New Testament. If you aren't aware of the Samaritan-Jewish uh, divide, you would easily read past these instances. John 4, 9, you guys are totally aware of Jesus and the woman at the well. Now, ordinarily, when we hear that uh, passage taught, we hear about the whole town coming to Jesus, Jesus having mercy on this woman who had, had many uh, partners and had, had been with many men and, and the one she was with then and wasn't her husband and he speaks right into it. And, and we usually use that as a uh, scripture to encourage people to love sinners, right? Jesus and the woman at the well, and here she is, this woman that's, you know, adulterous, and, and we can't look down on sinners. We gotta be like Jesus, we gotta love them. Well, what we don't get is here's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and he shows up, <laughs> and what he does here is so, it's not just politically incorrect, it's far, far beyond that. It is so in the face of every stereotype, every bit of prejudice, all the discrimination that's going on between Jews and Samaritans, and furthermore, uh, men and women. Because the gender void was as significant, and even in some, some ways more significant, than the cultural and racial void. So he shows up, and when his disciples aren't looking, he starts a conversation with a Samaritan woman. I mean, it's like he just shows up and just goes, I'm about to just blow this whole thing up. I'm about to just talk to a woman who's you know, got all these partners and she's not married, I'm not married, I'm gonna kill all the cultural norms, I'm gonna speak right across the gender gap, oh, and let's just add a little salt on it, let's make her a Samaritan because Jews don't talk to Samaritans, ever. Look at the verse. We gotta, we gotta understand the context or we don't even understand why she's asking the question, remember? He starts talking to her, he says, hey, can I get a drink? You're, you're, you know, you're getting some water out of the well, can I get some water? The woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? How are you even talking to me right now? You have completely blown up all the cultural norms and essentially spit in the face of all the prejudices of our day. What are you doing? Who are you? Why are you doing this? We don't understand how subversive Jesus' actions in John 4 were to a culture of prejudice and discrimination. He was right up in the face of it, beloved. 
super revolutionary activity going on in Jesus Christ. Not, not a little bit, super revolutionary activity. And he goes on and says, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. These lines are never crossed. Well, God, who doesn't look at those things as valid uh, separations, prejudice and hatred as valid divisions, he sends his own son who manifests his own image, who manifests his own glory, who only does what he hears the, sees the father do, only says what he hears the father say. He sends his son right into the teeth of it. And John 4 is a massive statement about the heart of God towards prejudice, discrimination and racism. Jesus, I mean, he just, he just goes right after it with an aggression. So much so, he shows love to this woman so much so that she is impacted to the extent that she goes and shares the gospel with the whole town. It's powerful. I, we cannot underscore the perspective that the Son of God has in regard to discrimina discrimination and prejudice. His, his approach to it is to go right after it, not to ignore it, I'd say, well, that's a hot topic. We gotta be careful. Can't offend the big givers. He comes right in it and faces up to it and blows it up. Beloved, this is where I feel right now. I feel like it's time for the church to blow up the issue of racial prejudice in our city. It's time for us to speak right into it and act right into it. Blow this thing up and get the same attitude that Jesus had where we go into the teeth of it and we see the thing completely melt under the power of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. Look at uh, Luke 9. Luke 9, funny little passage. We don't quite get it. You read over it, you don't get it. Look at this. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village to prepare for him. So many of the roads from the surrounding areas go through Samaritan villages. So it was regular for you know, uh, Jews that were making the trek to, to Jerusalem feasts to have to go through Samaritan villages. But what we don't realize is, is that the Samaritans didn't like that a bit. They weren't necessarily for, you know, uh, Jewish holidays or, or, you know, Israeli nationalism. And, and they would think of the Messiah as a nationalistic uh, figure who would be interested in subverting Samaritans. And so... Verse 53, the disciples are trying to make ready for Jesus to come, but they did not receive him. The, the Samaritans of the city reject Jesus. They, he was, his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. They found out that he was essentially on pilgrimage, feast in Jerusalem, and, and the Samaritans go, we're not gonna facilitate this. We're not, we're not for Jewish national. We're not doing this. Just get out of here, just go. You can't even, you can't rent any place for you guys to stay over. We're not into it. 
Now look at this. Verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, sons of thunder, aren't they? Always going to try to get something started. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? They were a little full of themselves that day. I'm so grateful. I just got to be honest. I'm so grateful for where the New Testament shows us when the disciples did and said stupid stuff. Because we all do and say stupid stuff. And I'm so thankful that they do and say stupid stuff too. It makes me, well, it just makes me feel better about myself. (laughs) It makes me realize that I'm not counted out. Right? You get all David's dirty laundry, why? So the Lord says, he's saying to us through that, you know, David's not a disciple, but King David, you get get all his dirty laundry when you look at his life, why? Because the Lord too can have a heart like David's. You can have a heart like David's. It's not about being perfect. It's about having a heart that loves me more than anything else. James and John, let's, let's call fire down on the Samaritans. Let's devour them with fire, just like Elijah. We're like Elijah, let us do that. Look at Jesus, verse, next verse. I guess 55, it's, it's misprinted. It says, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. What's interesting to me is, Jesus doesn't say, you can't call fire down on them. He says to them, you don't know what spirit you're actually of, that you're supposed to be operating from. In other words, you're of the wrong spirit. There's something that's supposed to be compelling you, but you're in the opposite spirit. You don't even know the spirit you are of. And we're gonna talk about what that spirit is that Jesus was calling out in them, but he's clearly telling them, you're not in the Holy Spirit right now. You're in a, you're in a, an, he rebukes it. Again, Jesus taking that place of going right after the prejudice, dealing with it, rebuking it, and they move on. All right, look at uh, Peter in Antioch. Paul, giving the commentary. But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the the coming of certain men from James, James from Jerusalem, the, 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 the seat of where the church is coming from, Jerusalem had to actually go over to Antioch and see about the revival. What's going on here? There's a bunch of Gentiles getting saved. Well, Peter's there, and before James sent men, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. That's what it says. Peter sat down and was eating with the Gentiles. They they were probably having some barbecue ribs, some, some fat back, some pork, pork tips. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof doing what? fearing the party of the circumcision. The prejudice in Peter's heart, it surfaced as fear of what men would think. If I eat barbecue ribs with these Gentiles, the Jews that came from Jerusalem are gonna think something lesser of me. 
Look what Paul does. He says, look at what he says. He says, the rest of the Jews even joined him in hypocrisy with the Rebus, was carried away by their hypocrisy. So now, all the people that had been Jews that were there ministering to the Gentiles, who there had been this great move of unity going on, they all now separate themselves. You guys sit over there, and we will sit over here. Isn't it weird when prejudice is going on, how there's an automatic sensation of segregation? Jim Crow wasn't the first one, guys. Jim Crow laws and separate, all that mess, it's right here in the scripture. It's right there in the apostle Peter. It's right there in Barnabas. Why? Because this kind of sin, it's native to all men. When there's a dominant faction and a minority faction, because of sin nature, the dominant faction will operate in a certain manner. Without Jesus bringing unity to the mix, there will be a prejudiced thing because that's the sin nature of humanity. Man, I'm preaching good. The rest of the Jews join him. Verse 14, but when I saw, look at Paul. Woo, Paul. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, but entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, in other words, when I saw they were being hypocrites, when I saw that they were you know, giving way to prejudice and discrimination, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all. <laughs> I mean, there they are. There's Peter with all the Jews over here. There's all the Gentile believers over here. Paul's looking at this thing. He stands up and goes, hey, I, I got something to say, brothers. Everybody listen. And he calls it out in front of everyone. He goes right after it. Peter, got a question for you. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, this. He goes, you're a Jew, you're supposed to, but you're living like an unholy man because you're operating in prejudice and discrimination and hypocrisy. He goes, how then are you gonna tell the Gentiles that they've gotta be holy when you're full of hypocritical judgmentalism in your own heart? Woo! That was a nice come to Jesus meeting. A little unity message going on there. And here's the thing, over and over and over in the New Testament, we see Paul, we see Jesus, we see James, and they are hitting this thing. They're not stepping back from it. They're not ignoring it. They're going after it. Why? Because it's not supposed to be us. There's not supposed to be segregation, discrimination, press, racism of any kind in the body of Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ dealt with it. People don't realize this, but D, the book of Romans. There are many reasons why commentators say that Paul wrote the book of Romans. I believe the leading reason is because the book of Romans is a racial reconciliation book. We don't really get that point, but here's what's going on. I explained this in the notes under one, two, and three. Claudius Caesar had expelled all the Jewish, all the Jews from Rome, so that was all the Jewish Christians as well. 
So for five years minimum, the church that's in Rome, the house churches, are all Romans. There's no Jews there. After Claudius died, welcome back to Rome under Nero. And so we have this picture in Acts 18, we see them expelled. And by Acts, uh, I mean, by Romans 16, when Paul's writing to Rome, we've got uh, Jewish Christians back in the church at Rome. So Paul has never visited Rome at this point, which is unusual because usually Paul is writing to the churches that he planted. He's writing to the congregations that he's been a part of. Rome is unusual because he's writing now to a church he's never been to. And what's he doing? When you break down what's going on with the book of Romans, you find this. Paul says this. He goes, the Gentiles, chapter 1, that have rejected God, even though they know in their heart because of what God put in them through creation, they know of his existence. They've, they've rejected God and, and begin, they've given themselves to all sorts of debauchery and lasciviousness. Chapter one. Chapter two, and he goes, and you, Jews, who approve of such things, you're just as guilty as they are. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what's he doing? He's saying this in the first six chapters. He goes, everybody's got a sin problem and everybody's got the same answer to sin and the only answer to sin is the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross, Jew and Gentile alike. And then he goes through uh, uh, 9, 10, and 11, and he says, listen, listen, uh, Gentiles. He goes, now that I've busted the Jews, he goes, all you Gentiles, he goes, don't get all haughty and puffed up because the Jews rejected Jesus. He goes, you are grafted in to God's olive tree unless you give up on the faith and then you'll be grafted out again. Romans 9 through 11 is about the, the, uh, the, uh, the words efficacy, the efficacy of the gospel to work for Jew and Gentile alike that the Jews are in and the Gentiles in. And by 11, he goes, oh, the, the wonder of the way God leads. Who knows his ways? They're past finding out stuff. And then 12 through 16, it's a call to love. It's very much a reiteration of the Sermon on the Mount. The whole book of Romans is a racial reconciliation book. And Paul's main point is we're all under sin. We all need grace. And in the gospel is the only way that we can come out of condemnation and come into the spirit. All of us. So he calls them to unity. And he says, by the end of the book, he goes, I want you to note those who make divisions among you. Because that's not what we're doing. Strong words from the apostle. All right. So my point in that whole section is this. Don't think that racism, prejudice, bias is new. It's been existing in the earth for centuries. And the Bible has much to say about it and bring us into unity under the banner of the gospel of Jesus. Now, this is what I really wanted to get to. <laughs> that was just introduction. We're just going light and fluffy today. It's just all whipped cream. Look at Roman numeral three. We turned the AC up too, just to make it hot in here, just double. 
I don't know, we've got something going on, it's hot, but whatever. All right, here we go. Roman numeral three. Let's talk about the nature of injustice. Let's talk about injustice from God's perspective. Now, A, wherever injustice exists in the earth, it's the exact opposite of the nature of God. We established last week that his throne is established on righteousness and justice. And that when Jesus returns, one of the key things he's going to release on the earth, which will flow right from his throne, is justice throughout every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So Jesus is given to seeing justice released across the nations. And it really boils down to this, guys. He's interested in justice now, and wherever there are inequities that exist when he returns, he will make all the wrong things right. He's interested in seeing wrong things being made right now, the establishment of his kingdom when he comes. Both and. It's not just for then, it's not just for now. We have both of those manifestations through the power of Jesus Christ. So the church should be interested in both. The manifestation of justice now and the manifestation of justice when the Lord returns. I will tell you this. I am under the impression that most people only know a very small fraction of the human injustice that exists in the earth. When the Lord comes, there is going to be a massive revealing of the truth of human hearts. And it is gonna be a shock fest as we see Jesus Christ get to the bottom of injustice throughout every system of human society for all time. We are gonna be blown away by the wickedness and the, the wicked nature of sin. I heard somebody say this week, you know, I, I, I kinda feel like we hear so much about sin, we, we kinda heard everything we need to know about sin, and, and so we just need to hear about the blessings. I would propose this, almost, I, probably nobody really understands the depth of the wickedness of sin. And because of that, we kind of give ourselves a pass. Don't tell me about sin, brother. Tell me about the blessings. Tell me about grace. Look, we need to know the power of grace to lift us out of sin. But if you don't know the, the, the sinfulness of sin, the wickedness of sin, you'll have no value for the grace of God that delivers you from it. I'm, and I'm not about beating people over the head. That's not the goal. But we've got to understand the utter, I mean, disgusting sinfulness, the wicked nature of sin, so that we can exalt and glory in the grace of God that's delivered us from such, such a death. Oh, thank God for grace. So Jesus, when he comes, he's going to release justice. He is going to be fiery, and determined and unswerved. He will not be bargained with. And I, I, I mean, I think when we see him at the judgment seat and mankind are trying to bargain with the son of God and talk their way out of all the injustice and wickedness of their hearts, it is gonna be the most cringe-worthy moment. I mean, we're gonna hear people in their little excuses and go, oh, oh, because we know what's coming. The one with fire in his eyes, is, it's gonna roll down like a mighty river he is going to bring justice to the nations and he will not be talked out of it. Amen. People are gonna try to bargain with the son of God. He's not afraid of men. He has no fear of man. 
You can't show up with a bargaining chip at the, at the judgment seat. I really tried. I almost did. I was kind of a good guy. None of that's going to work. And it says of him, he will bring justice, Isaiah 42, and he will bring justice to the nations. My point is, it's on the forefront of his mind when he shows up to make all the wrong things right. It's on his forefront of his mind then, and it's on the forefront of his mind now. This is who he is. So here's the deal. Wherever injustice exists, it's the exact B, throughout the Bible, human injustice is continually rebuked, repudiated, and judged by God. He's consistent in his repudiation of injustice in every form, in every place. There are so many scriptures that deal with the issues of injustice. The Old Testament prophets are primarily dealing with those who who act unjustly towards one another. And they act that way because of a lack of the knowledge of God. It's It's their vertical relationship or lack thereof that creates horizontal injustice manifest through them. Am I making sense? So here's the thing. He is strongly aligned against injustice in every form. He will make all the wrong things right. He is acting today to make uh, the wrong things right, and he will, in a full way, release justice through the nations. Now, see, in light of his nature, we must also understand that the greatest injustice man perpetrates is not injustice against one another. Hear me. It's injustice perpetrated God. Injustice is firstly against God and then manifest towards men. It's firstly against God and then manifest towards men. Look at it. Verse uh, uh, number one under C. The cross is the greatest single act of injustice the earth has ever seen. The perfect, spotless son of God being defamed, mistreated, tortured, and put to death at the hands of humans who he created. That is the greatest single act of injustice ever. The continuation of this injustice manifests throughout the earth, is manifest throughout the earth to this day. The greatest injustice today is that the son of God is not worshiped throughout the nations of the earth. That's the greatest injustice. The only one who's worthy is being rejected wholesale throughout the nations. And in many, many places of the earth, people don't even know his name. They have no access to even come to him. It's injustice that the Son of God is not rightly worshiped at the highest level, beloved. We have to get our perspective not from any kind of uh, you know, human, you know, uh, horizontal mentality. We've got to get it from a heaven perspective, from heaven's perspective. Injustice is firstly against God and then against humanity. And the greatest is that the Son of God is not properly worshipped. Every other injustice pales in comparison to this one. Three. For us to understand injustice rightly, we must understand injustice from his perspective. The truth is that the injustices we inflict, this is a huge point, the injustices that we inflict upon one another are ultimately acts of injustice against God. So, 
if we get our perspective rightly aligned, we understand this, that where injustice exists between men, it is ultimately an act of injustice against God. And the Lord takes notice, the Lord doesn't forget, and the Lord determines to make the wrong right. But the greatest injustice the earth has ever seen, the greatest single act is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, justice that exists in the earth. While there are many, many horrifying injustices, the greatest one is the lack of worship offered to the Son of God throughout the nations. Four, God promises to bring retribution on every form of injustice. He is committed to releasing justice in the earth. Justice is an attribute of his nature. He will not relent until justice is served throughout the nations. He is going to make all the wrong things right. He says of himself, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the day of vengeance burns in his heart. Here's the point. That is not, those statements are not to get us uh, aligned uh, with God, asking God to release judgment on those that reject him like the disciples did. Those statements about who he is as the God of justice are supposed to spark our heart to cry out for mercy for the perpetrators of injustice. Mercy. Because what's waiting for them, if they will not repent, is far more severe than any kind of natural, you know, retribution they'll experience. The knowledge of who he is as the God of justice calls our hearts to cry for mercy. Which is why Jesus rebuked the Samaritans who were rejecting him. I mean, he rebuked the disciples who were rejecting him. He rebuked the disciples because they were not operating in his nature. They were operating contrary to his nature. They weren't asking for for mercy to to bring them to, to, you know, worshiping the son of God. They were just saying, let's just destroy them. There's one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Who is that? That's Satan. Jesus came to give life. He's always looking for the path of restoration. He's always looking for the path of reconciliation. He's always looking for the path of mercy. And mercy judgment. Now, <laughs> let's take a look at the nature of racism. Somebody told me this week, if people don't get mad, you haven't preached it right. (laughs) Not trying to make anybody mad. But the point is, truth alarms me. There are so many truths in the scripture that I've had to personally and and just continue to have to wrestle with. Because I go, "I, I don't know you the way that I think I do. I need to see it from your side instead of seeing it from my own side and from my own way. All right, look at this. The nature of racism. Watch this. Every person 
is created in the image and likeness of God. Every person. There's stuff inside each one of us that declares of him through our gender, our culture, our ethnicity. There's, there's things about us that declare him. One of the greatest ways that I've understood who he is as a father is by becoming a father. And I got to see his fingerprints all over me. That's, that's why I love as a father, because he's a father. Now here's the thing. The very fact that we are diverse in gender, culture, and ethnicity declares truths about his nature. If we despise certain cultures or ethnicities, ultimately, it's not only humans that we despise, it's God. Listen to me clearly. Every one of us, diversity in humanity, it declares something of the nature and the knowledge of him. And when we despise certain genders, cultures, or ethnicities, we're despising, yes, we're despising men, but we're despising something of the nature and the knowledge of God. That's a huge point. Now watch. Because Satan cannot destroy God, his main work is to destroy the image of God. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Satan's work is to destroy the image of God. Racism, therefore, is hatred for the image of God as revealed in the unique pigmentation, cultural traditions, and languages of men. Racism is against God. It's hatred for the image of God. Let me give it to you more clearly and let me just call it out. Racism is the spirit of Antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist. When you see like genocides that are happening, that have happened throughout the nations, I always look at the, the largest one in human history, the, the genocide that happened under the Nazis against the Jews. What we tend to miss is that it wasn't just Jews that the Nazis were exterminating. They were exterminating everyone who did not line up with their specific ethnicity and culture. They were going after a complete ethnic cleansing. So we see ethnic cleansing as a, as a manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist. When you see this in the earth, when you see racism, it always moves towards this destruction of a people group. What is that? It's the devil. This thing is satanic. Why do you think the church is get, gets a stranglehold on it? Why do you think the, the preacher's mouths, they, they slam shut for fear of offense? Because they're dealing with something that's not just a little bit of a personal preference with people. They're dealing with something at the root that's the spirit of Antichrist. I'm calling it out. Where racism exists in our hearts, we're giving way to the spirit of Antichrist, guys. That's a huge thought. 
It makes my heart tremble and it causes me to want to run to God. And the seeds of racism, they exist in prejudice and in bias and in stereotype and discrimination. And it manifests in outward antagonism and hatred of a particular ethnicity or people group. Where that exists, that is Satan. Mark it down. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Whenever you see anti-Semitism, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Whenever you see racism, I'll say it again, it's the spirit of Antichrist. And here's my message to the church, come out of her. Come out of that Babylonian demonic thing. Come into you, wherever there's hatred, wherever there's bitterness, wherever there's stereotype, type, prejudice, bias in your heart, come out of that. That's not the Holy Spirit. When Jesus called out his disciples, he said, you don't know the spirit you're of. You know what he was saying? You're operating in the spirit of Antichrist right now. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come to give life. Forgive, have mercy. Allow who I am to redefine you. Can you take a little more? Roman numeral five, the nature of unity. Unity is not uniformity or conformity, it's harmony. Unity is not uniformity or conformity, it's harmony. You know, I've heard white people say, well, I'm just colorblind. I don't, I don't, see, I don't see colors. And, 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 and I understand what you're trying to say. What you're trying to say is you're not prejudiced. You're trying to say you don't carry bias. I, I get what you're trying to say, but it doesn't come off that way. Let me just talk to you for a minute. When you say I'm colorblind, it, it, it comes more off like you're trying to ignore something that's directly in front of you. I've had... You know, uh, one of my black friends say, he goes, when somebody says to me, they're colorblind, I just feel like looking them back in the face going, you can't tell I'm black? (laughs) And the point is this, God's not trying to get us to be quote unquote colorblind. He's trying to get us to embrace who he is and who he is is manifest in multiple cultures and multiple ethnicities. There's something of the nature of God in every kind of ethnicity and culture and people group. Men are created in his image and likeness, so all of us have distinctive manifest him to the earth. He is not one color or colorless. He is a mixing melting pot of so many different shades and, and, and cultures and, and dis, I mean, just distinctive, unique things. The point is this, take the, the six and a half billion, look at them in a mosaic to where all the uniqueness of every individual just washes over you. Let it overwhelm you. And then turn your eyes to the throne and recognize that that mosaic is just a hint of who he is. 
Unity is harmony. It's who we are. We speak, we speak of who he is in our diversity. Diverse parts coming together in a way that actually enriches each of the differences while corporately enhancing the whole. It's like when you're cooking, and I don't cook, my wife's awesome, but I'm just, I can make cereal and cheese toast. But there's something about when you get the right spices in the thing, and man, everything tastes better. And you may not be one that just likes to like, you know, take bites out of an onion, eating all of it by itself. But you put that together with a variety of spices, and that whole thing is, is, that whole thing is enriched. And each of the individual pieces, they actually enrich the others so that the whole is better. Ultimately, together, the sum is better than any of the parts. This is the destiny of the body of Christ, to be a glorious expression of unity and diversity. Unity is a product of relationship. Hear me, guys. You gotta hear me right now. It's a product of relationship. It doesn't happen because I'm in a Christ spirit preaching the word. Unity doesn't happen because the spirit of revelation comes on your heart and illumination comes or conviction comes. That doesn't make unity. Unity happens when we act in response to the wooing of the spirit of God and relationships are formed. That's where unity happens. We can feel the Holy Spirit's conviction and, and illumination, but the revelation of the Holy Spirit alone does not create unity. It comes from intentionally seeking it out. It doesn't happen inevitably. In fact, what happens inevitably is disunity and discord and prejudice unless we intentionally develop relationships and move towards unity. And here's how it goes. Once there are deep friendships formed, that's where divine ideas are formed. There's something that I can't get by myself because I'm a part of you and you're a part of me and we together are in him. I can't get it all by myself. I need you to help me get it and you need me to help you get it and we need each other to get it together so that you provide your part, I provide my part, he provides his part, she provides her part, black, white, Asian, Latino, all together we're providing our parts and there's something of revelation that's born in the midst and we can't get it alone. That's where, this is where this thing has to go. Deep friendships in love become the seedbed for the creativity of God. And that's where the spirit of prophecy is born, is us together sharing with one another and allowing love of the brethren to overflow and overwhelm so the Holy Spirit charges the nature and the knowledge of God because this is what it's ultimately about. Hear me clearly, it's ultimately about knowing him. And I need what's in you so I can know him. What happens inevitably is disunity. It, it, everything unravels unless we intentionally tie it together and go after the things that which God he, uh, sent Jesus for and, and died for us for. And that deep friendship, divine ideas, it's from that place that we love and protect one another. Hear me. 
If you're not in deep relationship with someone, when injustice is happening to them, you kind of just stand on the side, hands in your pockets. But if you're in love, no one is going to perpetrate injustice against your loved one, and you just sit there and go, well, they just gotta handle that. Am I communicating? I, I, wouldn't, let, I wouldn't let anybody do something to my daughter. I, I, would, I mean, somebody comes and tries to do something unjust to her, I wouldn't just stand by and watch. It wouldn't matter what it was. I would be in between her and the problem instantaneously. Why? Because of the love that I have for her, the depth of relationship I have for her. The body of Christ is supposed to operate that way across cultural lines. It's in deep relationship that we love and protect and fight for one another. It boils down to this, we can't only agree that we're brothers and sisters legally in the gospel. We actually have to live it out. And then our kinship in Christ, it will actually be real. It will actually be real. And that's what I'm after. Authentic kinship in Jesus. We're truly, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, and every tribe and tongue and people and nation expressing the unique, distinct, <laughs> redemptive things that God's put in our culture together. That's united. That's unity. Last thoughts. Power of reconciliation. I won't go too long on this. I know we're, get, we're going short on time. I'll encourage you to review all this content this week and ask the Lord to speak to your heart more in depth. Next week, I'm gonna deal with some of the more specific social issues that are confronting us today. But look at this. The gospel is a reconciling gospel. The gospel answers the problem that every human has with God. The gospel does. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. We know these verses, but I don't think we really know them. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God. That needs to be so valuable to us that we actually comprehend that we were enemies of God. We hated God. We were hopelessly, helplessly lost apart from Jesus coming. We were completely separated and doomed. And God comes and he takes care of the enmity on his side by his own son's death, burial, and resurrection. He takes care of it on his side. And there's humanity standing obstinately with their back towards God, still rejecting the gift of love. But God is saying, I have done everything necessary to be able to restore relationship with you, but there's one thing you must do, repent. Just turn to me. 
Turn to me because I've already made a way through the death of my son. Turn to me. And he says he's given us that message, the message of reconciliation, and this is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And you and I, we've experienced the blessing of that by being in Jesus, we've become a new creation. We're a new creature. We're new from the inside out. Old things have passed away. All things have become new in our spirit. This is who we are, and we get to walk in the reality of this. We have a new, how do I want to say it, DNA. It's called being born again. We're defined anew. Not just male, female, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. We're defined anew by a, 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 a more broad title that encompasses all of us. It's called in Christ, born again. What's fascinating is the power of God in the gospel to be able to bring us back into unity with himself. But the power of the gospel doesn't stop there. It extends, not just vertically, but horizontally. Last thought, look at Ephesians 2.11. Paul's speaking into the context of division in that day, and then he says this. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, and by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. You were completely separated. That's all of us. If you aren't a Jew in here, you were separated, completely without hope, alienated. 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he himself is our peace. But look at this phrase, who has made both one. Made both, both what? Both Jews and Gentiles, one. He's speaking into the ethnic division that existed in the day, and he's hammering it, saying, has destroyed the boundary. The, the gospel has destroyed the dividing wall. Jew and Gentile, you've been made one. And he's broken down. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity. You want to know where the justice was carried out that, that, that was existing between you and another culture? It was carried out on the body of Jesus Christ. He abolished the enmity in his own flesh so that we could be one. Abolish the enmity, that is the law of commandments that contain an ordinance so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God. Do you see it? It's a horizontal reconciliation, people groups and ethnicities and cultures, and it's a vertical reconciliation between us and God. That's the power of the gospel. And in the church, there should be no schism. There should be no division. There should be no separation. There should be no prejudice or bias or partiality. There should be no racism. The fact that racism exists even today in the church, I mean, it is such a, that is such a broken thing. I don't even know how to describe that because it's the antithesis 
of the Spirit of God. We are to be one in Jesus. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic. We are to be one. That's what the cross was about. The New Testament addresses these things head on and thus we should not be afraid of them. We should go right into them. Here's what I wanna say. I I just wanna speak plainly. It's time that we become intentional about destroying walls of disunity that exist between us, especially black and white. Okay? What does that mean? That means this. We have got to form deep relationships across racial walls, across racial lines. Now look, if you're, if you're Latino or you're Asian in here, just, just give me a minute thing because it's the thing that's blowing up right now in, in, the, in the public eye. This do, doesn't matter. I can blast these issues. We can, I can put it all over my social media. I can put it all out on, on you know, uh, our podcast. I, I can go after it with you guys. But if it doesn't turn into action, we're just, we're just kidding ourselves. Here's what I'm asking. Here's what I'm asking, all of us. And I'm specifically speaking to the, the, the majority culture in the room, which would be white. We've got more white people than black people. I'm asking you to reach out across racial lines and begin to develop relationship with somebody of another culture, specifically a black person. To do it in here because we will never affect the spirit of racism out there unless we do it in here. Man, I'm preaching good, it's okay, you don't have to amen, this should mess you all up, it's all right. Think it through. When was the last time, you, if you're white, you had a black person in your house? If you're black, when was the last time you had a white person in your house? When was the last time you sat down to a meal with a person that's either black or white, if you're you know, black or white from the other culture? When? It's, it's an indictment of how we live our lives in isolation. We say we're not racist or prejudiced or, or carry bias, but then we live out in isolation. And the entire time we ignore issues that are important because we're afraid. And why? Because the spirit of Antichrist is empowering that spirit and it exists even in the church. So it's gonna be sloppy. It's not gonna be done well. It's gonna be awkward. But I am specifically asking the majority to reach out to the minority in this house of prayer, in our, in our church, to begin to unity across racial lines. If we don't act, we just simply hear a message, walk out the door, and remain the same. And I'm not okay with that. Are you okay with not acting? I'm not okay with that. So for some people that's super uncomfortable, for some people that'd be super awkward, I get it, I understand. I remember years ago when I was challenged in a message, in a meeting with a message just like this one that challenged me as a white person to begin to form relationships across racial lines. And and I remember that awkward feeling of am I gonna do this? And and man, I'm not really a racist and, and all that stuff. 
I don't care about any of that. What I care about is love. Is love compelling us into action? Because it has to. It has to compel us into action. Amen and amen. All right, let's stand.